welcome to the Dietitian Connection podcast, a show about nutrition, dietitians, and their success stories. This podcast, hosted by Kate Agnew and Marie Ferguson, will empower you to realize your professional dreams by giving you access to our global community of dietitians. Through our conversations with nutrition leaders, we'll educate you, inspire you, and help you create more impact as a dietitian. Thank you to Nutrition for supporting this podcast. Welcome to today's Dietitian Connection podcast. My name is Marie Ferguson and I'm the founder of Dietitian Connection. And it's my pleasure today to have Dr. Leanne Chappell join us. Leanne and I are going to talk about the latest evidence in critical care nutrition and how do we actually interpret and translate the evidence into best practice for our critical care patients. And we're going to answer the question, is critical care nutrition more than just life or death? It's my pleasure to introduce Leanne. Uh, Leanne is an ICU dietitian and she currently holds an NHMRC early career fellowship based within the ICU research at the Royal Adelaide Hospital in Australia, where she conducts research in the area of protein metabolism, gastric emptying, appetite regulation, and using technology to improve nutrition delivery in order to improve outcomes for survivors of critical illness. So thanks so much for joining us today, Leanne. I'm really looking forward to chatting with you. Thanks, Marie. Thanks for having me. So to get started, could you tell us a little bit about why you decided to become a dietitian and what your early years as a dietitian looked like? Sure. Um, so deciding to become a dietitian, I think I literally sat down with a job guide and crossed everything else off the list. Um, so I grew up in, in a country town in South Australia. My parents have a fruit property there. So I guess I was always around food um, and Going to boarding school, I definitely saw the effect that food could have on people's lives and, and just how different the social aspects of food were um, and how integrated that was in people's lifestyles. So I think that's really why I decided to get into nutrition. I really like the science of it as well, particularly the biology, chemistry, maybe not so much. Um, but, yeah, I think that nutrition really combined a lot of the evidence or the science with social um, and both aspects I really enjoyed. Um, yeah, sorry. I was going to ask you, and what else was on the list that you crossed <laughs> off? Um, the other ones that I was interested in were optometry, um, and then I discovered you needed a lot of physics for that, which was not one of my strong points, mm. um, and audiology, so definitely the health science field. Um, it seemed to be something that drew both myself and my siblings. So I've got a, an older sister who's a speech pathologist and a brother that's a pharmacist. Um, so, yeah, it just seemed to be where, where we were led to. Yeah, that's quite the healthcare team there in the family. It is. Um, <laughs> and then my youngest brother is a drone flyer. So oh, wow. Just, yeah, completely left to field. But, yeah. yeah, very important cool. It's an industry <laughs> to be in these days. Definitely, yeah. And so how did you spend your early years as a dietitian then? Yeah, so my first position, like a lot of um, new graduates, was in the country. So I worked for a few months um, up in Swan Hill in Victoria, um, which just gave me such a breadth of experience. It was um, a renal dialysis unit, an inpatient hospital, a few nursing homes, outpatient clinics. Um, I just felt like I could dip my toe in everything, but anything too serious went somewhere else. So it was nice to um, just get the, the, that level of experience and, and learn maybe what sort of field I'd like to go into. 
Um, after that, I moved back to Adelaide and I um, was working as a research dietitian. I was on a pregnancy study. So we're looking at limiting um, or reducing weight gain in patients that um, were overweight or obese during their pregnancy or at the start of the pregnancy. Um, so that was the first research experience that I got um, in that field. Um, I then moved to Melbourne where I worked at the Alfred Hospital, so very different to my country experience where it was really acute, um, you know, lots of burns patients, um, traumatic brain injury. I worked mostly in trauma and surgical areas there. Um, so that really gave me more of the acute clinical setting and, and what I ultimately decided to do my research in after that. So that's where you got your love for critical care nutrition? Um, surprisingly not. Okay. I actually didn't work as a, a critical care dietitian until I started my PhD. So oh, okay. wow. um, at that point, I kind of fell into it. I was working in um, trauma and would see these patients with a traumatic brain injury, you know, young guys after a car accident that would just waste away, that lose 20% of their body weight in a few weeks. Um, and I just felt like there was nothing that we knew like what to do about it. There was no evidence. So it had been very little research in that space at that time. So um, I'd go up to the consultants and try and advocate to put a a, post, um, a, a peg in these patients and that they wouldn't have a bar of it. That, you know, their um, answer would be that they were young, their albumin was fine, so they'd recover okay and they wouldn't need that. But, um, yeah, just seeing them just lose so much um, muscle mass and then find the recovery stage really hard was was where I um, got that passion from. Um, it wasn't until later that I got into the ICU phase, I guess the earlier part, um, and that came about I moved to Canberra and was working as a clinical educator there um, and started my PhD at the same time. And at that point I was looking at post-ICU, so in traumatic brain injured patients after they left ICU. Um, and then I moved back to Adelaide to continue my PhD full time. And it was just then through the supervisors that I had. Um, so Professor Marianne Chapman and um, Associate Professor Adam Dean, they were intensivists and they were really, I guess, the closest fit I could find to the type of research that I wanted to do. Um, and they just happened to be in the ICU space. So, yeah, I kind of went a convoluted way around to get into ICU. And how was your PhD experience? Do you have any advice for dietitians wanting to pursue research or those who are currently doing a PhD or thinking about it? Yeah. Um, so I guess a PhD experience is, I guess you get highs and lows. Um, a, a PhD is, you know, it's a solid three to four years of hard work. Um, I learned a lot about myself. I learned a lot about resilience and problem solving, um, things that you expect to be the path just don't happen once you actually start doing the research things change a lot um, and I guess as a clinician one thing I found really difficult going into research was I was used to giving people something I was used to giving advice or um, you know contributing something to the team and then when I started doing research I felt that I was asking for things without immediately giving back you know there's that long-term gain afterwards but I just found that really difficult that um, being a silent observer or collecting data um, that wasn't immediately contributing to that patient's journey I found that quite difficult um, but the PhD journey was one that I would definitely do again maybe not immediately afterwards I wouldn't have said that um, but you just learn so much more about why you do things as a clinician and um I guess, yeah, interpreting the evidence, understanding why things are happening. Um, 
and being able to contribute on that larger scale, I found really useful. So yeah, yeah. I always say it's the those transferable skills that you can take to any career or any job after that. Yeah, definitely. And it's um, you know, my topic for my PhD was traumatic brain injured patients, and I was really trying to just quantify what actually happened at that time. So I um, spent a lot of time in the kitchen weighing food as it was plated up, um, endless hours of doing that on a Saturday night, Um, and then weighing or measuring how much muscle they lost using an ultrasound technique. So it was quite a hands-on PhD. It was at the bedside. um, And, yeah, it gave me really useful skills that then translated not just in that area but the whole research process has been really useful to um, help others afterwards. Mm. So any tips for some budding researchers out there? Um, I think often before you get into research you think it's easier than what it is and um, I think everyone just has this goal that they're going to go off and do a randomised control trial and you know, you know, that's the highest quality evidence, so it's good to aim high. But um, even just starting small and doing some observational studies um, or even retrospective studies, so looking at some data that your unit collects um, as part of standard care and just trying to get an understanding of what the current practice is, I think is a good starting point. Mm. Um, just learning about how to ask a research question and um, how research looks different from a clinical audit or just understanding your own practice. Um, I think if you're going into research, it's really important to be passionate about the area that you're studying. Uh, Three, four years is a long time um, in one topic if you're not interested in it from the start. So I think it's always good to work clinically first, really find out what your passion is um, and then go into the PhD from there. So I know you're really passionate about critical care nutrition. How and why did you become so passionate about this particular area? Yeah, um, I guess the thing I really like about critical care nutrition is the variety. Um, there's no other area where you see such different patient um, diagnoses and, and reasons for getting there. Um, when I first started my PhD, the, the traumatic brain injury was definitely the thing that stood out to me because they were, you know, a day before that they were perfectly fine, no health conditions, and then suddenly their whole life has, has turned around. And um, often the patient doesn't realise that, but the family definitely do. Um, and so I just wanted to help in that situation. Um, it just seemed like a very vulnerable place to be in, I guess. Mm-hmm. Um, the other thing I really like about critical care nutrition is that I feel like nutrition has so much value to add in that space. Um, and you're really part of a team. So often as dietitians, we we can work a little bit in silos and we'll give our advice, but I find in ICU you're you're embedded in that team. What you do affects other things um, and what what medical therapy is happening can can influence nutrition. So, um, yeah, so much. So I think it's it's just something that's integral to that patient at that Mm. time and, and they're very sick, so it's important. It's great to be a core team member of the the ICU team. Yeah, Uh, definitely. So you've conducted a lot of research in the ICU nutrition space. What have you done in the past and what are you working on currently? Sure. Um, So aside from my PhD, um, since then I've been doing, I guess, a few different streams of research. Um, The one that I'm most passionate about and probably where I'm heading at the moment is really looking at um, the influence of protein um, in trying to reduce muscle wasting in these patients. So in ICU in the past, we've been very focused on keeping people alive and, you know, they're really sick. We want to do everything we can to get them out of ICU. But there's only recently been attention on 
the quality of recovery in these patients. Um, we know that they can lose up to 30% of their body weight in or their muscle mass in a few days in ICU. And so what I'd really like to be able to do is give clinicians some um some evidence or even some tools to use to help reduce that and help improve patient recovery. Um, so as, as part of that, I, um, a lot of my research is trying to quantify muscle wasting, particularly at the bedside. Um, I think at the moment a lot of what we do is very observational from afar, I guess. We're often hands-off clinicians, um, but I think we need to have more objective measures. You know, if there was a blood test that we could do to show that nutrition was important, it would be world-changing. Um, and so I think we need to develop some more of those tools using technology to help um, measure the effect that we're having with our interventions. Um, Go ahead. I was okay. just going to say I couldn't agree <laughs> with you more. Yeah, that the more um, objective measures we've got, that's going to be really helpful for us. Definitely. And I think it's easy to argue with um, with language and a lot of what we do is all about getting adequacy in our requirements. So we estimate a requirement and then we try and achieve that. But what does that actually mean? Um, and so I think there's a lot of new things that we can use now, like indirect calorimetry, like ultrasound. Um, and I think in the next, you know, five to ten years, we're just going to see a lot more of those objective tools that we can implement in practice and, and show our benefit more. Mm -hmm. um, so I guess that's what a lot of my research is very physiological um, and I really want to understand what the nutrition is doing in the, in the body. Um, so one of the studies that I've just finished in collaboration with Maastricht in the, um, in the Netherlands is a study where we've given a protein feed um, that has a little label on it to either ICU patients or healthy controls um, and measured where that goes. So we can measure in the blood um, and then and a muscle biopsy as well. Um, so it's just, yeah, such an objective measure. You can't argue with that. And it's really understanding that if we give protein, what's, where is it actually going? Can it be used mm. to make muscle when they're, when patients are that sick? So mm. um, it's that type of research that's very hands-on um, and just explains to us why certain randomised control trials might show certain results, I guess. Mm. It's great to have the cutting-edge technology to do that as well. Yeah, definitely. Um, and then the other streams I've been working on is around gut function. So um, my primary supervisor, Marianne Chapman, for my PhD has built up um, the resources, I guess, and the expertise at the Royal Adelaide Hospital where I work around gastric emptying and measuring that using um, a camera. So you place a camera over the patient's stomach, you give them a small radiation dose, and you can measure how long it takes liquid nutrition to enter um, into the bowel. So I've been doing a study since my PhD comparing the one versus the two kilocal per mil feed, um, and I'll be presenting those results at the Aspen conference in, a, in about a month's time. So mm -hmm. I've been doing a lot of work around that space um, and then also looking more at the post-ICU um, and particularly around appetite. So we know that patients as they get older lose a lot of the um the physiological responses to, to hunger or to satiety. Um, and I have the feeling or from some of my early research that maybe there's the same post-ICU um, that patients, it might be that they're entirely fed for a long time, I'm not sure, but they um, their recovery is so poor. I want to explore if there's other factors post-ICU that might be influencing their intake. Mm. 
I'm not sure that you sleep, Leanne. There's a lot of research that you've got going on there. Thank you so much for contributing to the body of evidence. Thank you. It definitely takes a team. I couldn't do it without. I have um, a great group of other dietitians and research scientists that that help do a lot of the the hard work on the floor, taking the blood samples and those sorts of things. I don't do it alone. No, we all need a team around us. So there's so much research and studies out there. Based on the current evidence, what do we know for certain regarding the impact of nutrition care in the ICU patient? Sure. Um, The more I do research, the more I realise we don't know much for certain at all. I think (laughs) I have heard about other um, professors that go on their ward rounds and just question every little thing because a lot of what we do, I think, is not that there's no evidence, but to be certain about something is is really high-quality evidence and things change. Like an ICU patient now isn't the same as an ICU patient 30 years ago. They're much sicker. Um, The type of techniques we use for other medical therapy has changed a lot. So a lot of our patients aren't ventilated when before most of them were. So that has huge influences on our practice. So I think what we're certain about is, you know, in 10 years' time we might not be certain about. Um, I think there are some elements I think that um, we we do understand at the moment or feel that early nutrition is important for gut integrity, if not just for the calories. Um, in certain populations like burns, we know that the um, nutrition, you know, even the micronutrients is really important. Um, but I think at the moment nutrition in ICU is a relatively early science there there have been a lot of studies but it's really only in the last maybe 10 years that there's been some really good randomized control trials of big patient numbers across a broad um, demographic of patients so I think we're only just starting to scratch the surface Mm. of of nutrition care in in ICU. Yeah I look forward to the next 10 years because I think it's only going to be exponential in terms of what we're going to learn. Yeah. So what do you believe is the dietitian's role in the ICU based on your experience and your uh, knowledge? Sure. I guess um, a dietitian's role in ICU is very varied. I think in the past we've been very much about making sure the patient's getting what we're prescribing. So sitting there doing our equation and um, then going back and making sure that what we've asked um, to be delivered is actually received. Um, but I think the role is changing much more to um, really focus our attention on the patients that I think that are going to benefit more from the nutrition support. So um, monitoring in, I guess, more of a um, medical sort of perspective, so looking at the, the metabolic response or thinking about the anatomy and what will work for that individual patient. Um, I think particularly as our ICUs grow, we're not going to be able to do everything that we used to be able to do. We won't be able to see every patient that's on enteral feeds. Um, So I think as a dietitian, we have to learn when to step back and when we can um, implement a protocol that will take care of those patients that maybe nutrition won't um, have as big an impact on their outcomes um, and really trying to focus on those patients that that need our specialised care Um, and working within the team. You know, I think advocacy and leadership are um, definitely the way forward. I um, did a presentation not long ago, I think, to some nursing students. Um, Where I'm from, we've got a a 48-bed ICU with capacity up to 60 and I think around 1, 1. 1.2 FTE of dietitians. So there's no way that 
you know, you can see all those patients. We get over 4,000 admissions a year. If you're seeing every single person, you're, you're not going to sleep. So I think we have to learn how to prioritise, how to educate other staff within the unit to manage the um, more straightforward cases, mm. I think. It can often be harder to decide what not to do than just... Definitely, you know, yeah. definitely. And I think um, dietitians as a personality tend to be not perfectionists, but we're, we're very high achievers and so we want to do as much as we can. So learning when to step back mm-hmm. and, you know, to spend some time at your desk, understanding the literature, developing a protocol, trying to, you know, do staff training. I think it's hard to not see patients or we always think about what else we could be doing. But mm-hmm. we're going to get the po- to the point where you, you just can't do it. It's not yeah. physically possible. So we need to, I guess, work smarter mm-hmm. with how we do things, yeah. That's right. So when enterally feeding an ICU patient, dietitians often prescribe a specific regimen that on paper meets their energy and protein targets as set out in guidelines such as ESPEN. But we know from research that what's actually delivered is often far, far less than what's prescribed. So do you think that guidelines need to be adjusted to allow for this or is there another way altogether you think we should be delivering enteral nutrition? Yeah, I I definitely think that what what we – prescribe is is not what what patients receive so as part of some of the work I'm doing around protein there have been a couple of studies that have been done in in Australia New Zealand um, by Ronaldo Belomo and Emma Ridley that have looked at what the patients are actually receiving from what we've delivered in terms of protein Um, and it's about 50% I think some of our our big ICUs um, do tend to get up to around 80% of requirements. But overall, it's pretty standard across a lot of countries that we're meeting a lot less than what we actually prescribe. Um, I think I think guidelines definitely need to make, it, make people aware that just aiming for something and, and not going back and monitoring is never going to work. And I think that they... They definitely include things around monitoring now. Um, but I think that the that's a role for technology as well in, in monitoring um, how much enteral nutrition that we provide. Um, I think part of the, the question as well is that, you know, we're very much focused on energy and protein, um, but that's, you know, they're two nutrients or two elements of nutrition. So really when we're thinking about nutrition, you can't, decrease how much protein or how much energy is provided and and not think about the other things that the patient won't be getting as part of that or the micronutrients. And um, there's a lot of elements that I think we don't even understand that uh, comprise within an enteral feed. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we definitely need to look at the bigger picture. Yeah, And there was a recent landmark ICU nutrition study, which I know you're very familiar with, known as Target, um, was published. And the results have been a bit controversial and some circles have been interpreted as meaning that enteral feeding ICU patients is not a priority anymore. Can you briefly tell us about the study, what were the results and how you believe the results should be interpreted and used to guide our clinical practice in the ICU? Sure. Um, So for those that aren't aware, TARGET um, is an acronym that stands for the Augmented Versus Routine Approach to Giving Energy Trial. Um, So this is a trial that um, I think clinicians in Australia and New Zealand should be really proud of. It was a 4,000 patient randomised control trial um, comparing a standard enteral nutrition, so one kilocal per mule, versus a a concentrated or an augmented calorie feed, which was 1.5 kilocals per mule. Um, It recruited patients very quickly. We had, um, I think it was 46 sites across Australia and New Zealand. 
um, and they recruited those 4,000 patients in about 18 months. So they actually had to bring the interim analysis forward. So that's a, a check you do sort of halfway through the study to make sure that one of the groups isn't, um, you know, harmful. It's a, a check to make sure you can continue the study safely. Um, and they actually had to bring that analysis forward because they wouldn't have had the results by the time the study finished, which never happens. I was going to say um, that never happens. <laughs> <laughs> no, normally it's about how to recruit exactly yeah. and, and finding problems. So, yes, it was definitely a, a unique problem. Um, and, yeah, so so the study compared those two, two feeds. Um, the the intervention was delivered so that no one knew what feed patients would get. So it's really hard to do that kind of blinded study where the formulas were packaged to look exactly the same. We did tests to start with to see if people could tell the difference. You have to have the same um, colour and, and viscosity of the feed. Um, and they were matched on other levels, so they had the same fibre content, they had the same protein content. So they tried to adjust for other factors that might influence the results. And patients were fed the same volume, so they worked out based on a height measurement how much um, to feed so that, yeah, so it was matched in terms of the volume so that wouldn't affect the results. Um, and what they found is they delivered that feed for up to 28 days or while the patient was um, remaining in the ICU, and they found that the amount of calories um, didn't affect some of the important outcomes such as mortality, ICU length of stay and duration of mechanical ventilation. Um, so the patients actually received around 70% and 100% of their estimated requirements. Um, so it was comparing... You know, it was one of the first studies that could actually deliver 100% of requirements, which can, can be really challenging in these mm. um, patient populations. Um, but it found that, that whether you give 70% or 100% early in ICU doesn't affect those clinical outcomes. Um, so I think as dietitians that could be hard to take. And um, I think it's important to to interpret it for what it is. So I think that as clinicians now, we can take a little bit of a step back early on. Um, we don't have to be as aggressive with our approaches. Um, but the study was only delivered the, the median feeding time, so the, the average amount of time that patients receive feed, was only um, six days. So it's very much an early um, ICU nutrition study. So that's not saying um, that patients that have been in ICU for 28 days or for two months, uh, nutrition is not important. Mm. So I think we really have to understand that um, it's only for those patients that are early on in their stay. Yeah. I was just going to say, you always have to really look at the, the study methodology and take the context, the results in the context and um, yeah, I think the other problems um, or misinterpretations of the study is that even if we do our standard practice at the moment within a, a study, which often you do feed more if it's in a, a research study setting, um, that even when we're trying, we meet 70%, which is what the standard care arm gets. So if we stop trying, we might actually only deliver 40%. Um, and so whether there's a difference between patients achieving 40% and 100% of their mm -hmm. nutrition requirements, mm -hmm. we don't really know, um, particularly over the long term. So I think it it does demonstrate that we, we should still be trying, we should be proactive with nutrition, particularly in the, our long-state patients. Um, and it was really only a difference in calories. So there are other nutrients that are um, we perceive to be important um, and we haven't looked at the difference between mm -hmm. those. Yeah, so it sounds like it's important not to throw the baby out with the bathwater on this one. Definitely, mm -hmm. definitely. 
So clearly protein in the ICU is very topical at the moment and an area you are passionate in. What is the current evidence regarding the impact of protein on patient outcomes and how much protein should we actually be delivering based on the evidence? Sure. Um, So protein is something that I'm very um, interested in and I think now that we've done some big studies looking at calories and we know that patients lose a lot of muscle and protein intuitively should help prevent that, um, it's definitely something that I think should be our focus of research at the moment. Um, One thing that's happened is that there have been some smaller studies around protein that have shown positive outcomes, but we don't have a big randomised control trial yet. So it is hard to make conclusive or, you know, to be sure about how much protein to feed. A lot of the guidelines have changed. Um, So the recent Aspen and Espen updates have increased the amount of protein that they recommend to deliver to patients. So the American guidelines now recommend um, the 1.2 to 2 grams of protein and and possibly higher in burns or big multi-trauma patients. Um, And then the Espen guidelines recommend around 1.3 grams of protein per kilogram. Um, but as I said, that, that we don't have a big randomised control trial. So the evidence that is used for that is there's been some, some observational studies, quite a few actually, that have shown associations between how much protein is delivered. So the patients that receive more protein tend to have lower mortality. Um, however, we do know that with observational work, only about 10% of observational studies actually then proven once um, or the results are supported in a big randomised control trial. Um, so it's often the case that what we find when we are observing isn't actually the case when we study it using um, a rigorous study design. Um, however, there are some other studies that have been done locally, and I think we're really leading the way in this space. Um, so Kate Setterplace and Susie Ferry, um, both Australian dietitians that have um, completed PhDs, have looked at the impact of that on muscle wasting. So um, either delivered an enteral or parenteral protein um, supplementation and shown that it can reduce the amount of muscle that patients lose. Um, So they're relatively small studies and I think we do need to continue to work in this area and and have really large studies to support that. Um, But I think it's showing that that it has potential to be a really important therapy. Mm. And I know you're currently project managing the target protein feasibility study. Can you tell us a little bit more about that and what's the objective and where are you up to? Sure. So the Target Protein Feasibility Study really led on from Target. So it's run by the same management committee as Target. I wasn't involved in Target, so I'm a new addition. Um, And I've been co-project managing that with um, a dietitian, Matthew Summers, who's also based at the Royal Adelaide Hospital. Um, So the Target Protein Feasibility Study was 120 patients across six centres in Australia and New Zealand. So there were five centres here and then one centre in New Zealand. Um, and really this study is providing um, the evidence to support whether we should go on and do a large study and, and how that study would look. So a feasibility study is really important to do at the start to make sure that you're actually delivering what you want to deliver. So going back to our question before about what we prescribe isn't what we deliver, um, we needed to be sure that if we actually gave some feeds with different levels of protein, if patients would get to the level that we wanted. 
Um, so this study used um, commercial feeds. So one is a high-protein feed that's used um, quite a lot in practice across Australia and New Zealand um, compared to a new feed that was very high-protein. So these had 63 versus 100 grams of protein per litre, um, really high-protein, but they were matched on other levels. So they had the same same volume, same calorie um, composition. The, the protein was the same. So often with our very high-protein feeds, um, they might use more, um, you know, they might have a different, might be more whey or more casein and trying to get the two different types of protein to match um, is important. Um, and we ran it in the very same way to target. So the feeds were blinded. Um, we did tests to make sure that clinicians couldn't tell the difference between the feeds um, during the study. And we were just seeing if we could actually achieve a separation in protein dose um, and that the standard care arm would deliver the same amount of protein that we see in current practice and that the very high protein feed would deliver a level that meets international guidelines, so above that 1.2 grams of protein. Um, so where we're at with the study, we recruited those 120 patients within 84 days, so a very quick recruiting study as well. It's actually quite sad when I do my physiological studies that it might take me three years to recruit 20 patients yes. and then these ones are just done in the you know blink of an eye. So, mm -hmm. um, but there's a lot that goes on behind the scenes with them in setting them up. Mm. Um, yeah, and we'll, um, the results were presented at the Australian New Zealand Intensive Care Conference in Noosa um, in March and um, we'll hope to have a publication out soon. Um, so from that, it's really given us some data on the feasibility of doing the study. So can we achieve the, the intervention that we want? Is standard care representative standard care? And are there no um, negative side effects? So we looked at things like urea and creatinine to make sure that the very high protein feed was tolerated by patients and there wasn't any indication that we would be doing harm. Um, mm. with that intervention. Um, so from that, we'll go on to apply for some government funding. These 4,000 patient-plus studies uh, aren't cheap to run, um, so Target was supported by a government um, grant around 3 to $4 million from here in New Zealand. So um, you really want to make sure that you've got some supporting evidence that you're going to be able to, to run the study effectively and it's mm. going to have positive results. Yeah. From a previous life, I know how much work goes behind putting these research studies together and how challenging it can be to blind the products and match them as well. So Definitely, congrats to yeah. you and the team for all of that. Thank you. How do you think clinicians then should be measuring the effectiveness of their ICU nutrition interventions? Um, I guess from a research perspective, this is something that gets questioned a lot. Um, so... Often we use mortality as an outcome, but um, I think, as I mentioned before, we're starting to think more about other outcomes, um, more those patient-centred ones. I think as clinicians it's really important to be able to measure things where you can. So if you do have access to ultrasound or bioimpedance or some hand grip strength or, you know, something that you can use when patients are awake, I think it's important to, to be as hands-on as possible. I think it's also important to look at the whole picture. So thinking about their their ventilation status, you know, are they weaning effectively, um, any biochem le levels that we can look at, um, as well as the adequacy. So it is, I think, a, a frustration and it's something I found challenging as a clinician that 
um, nutrition benefits are long term and it's really hard to show on an individual patient level what the intervention is doing or how effective it is for that that patient so I think it's something that we definitely need to work on from a research perspective to make sure we have tools for clinicians to use to to measure effectiveness yeah that's where those objective parameters that you're looking into will be really valuable yeah exactly and so much of the attention seems to be given to patients in the ICU who are intubated. However, it's now starting to emerge that the post-ICU phase of a patient's journey probably needs just as much attention, if not more. What do we know currently about nutrition post-ICU? Why is it important that we look at this and what research is currently happening? Sure. Um, so it is definitely a, a bigger focus area. There's so many new reviews that have come out really focusing on the, the patient as a whole for their whole hospital journey and not just that period in ICU. I think the way that ICU care is going is we're really keen to get patients off the ventilator and out onto the ward as quickly as possible. Um, and so there have been a lot of changes in ventilation status um, over the last you know, 10 years. Um, so the patients are very different to what we're used to. Um, and we know that these patients have um, poor functional outcomes that can, you know, last up to five years after ICU, as um, Margaret Herridge has shown with her ARDS work or respiratory failure patients. Um, so we do need to start thinking about the whole journey and, you know, feeding within the first six days might not make a difference, but what the patient gets on the ward and what they get in rehab after that is really important to, to be able to make sure that we're not getting deficits over that whole period because they do accumulate over time. Um so in terms of post-ICU, my research group is doing a little bit of work around um, looking more at the symptoms that affect patients in ICU. So I had an honours student last year that conducted a study called Reinstate, which we'll hope to publish by the end of this year, that looked at factors like gastric emptying, metabolic rate um, and glucose absorption, so how much of the nutrients you give actually make it into the bowel um, to be used or into the blood. Um, and so that's comparing patients in ICU, post-ICU, and then three months later. So trying to look at factors that are actually influencing how much nutrition they get over that period um, and looking at cumulative deficits over that time. Mm. Um, Emma Ridley is also leading a study. Um, uh, it's a um, 240-patient randomised control trial that's looking at patients over the whole journey as well. So it's leading on from her PhD, looking at supplemental parental nutrition in ICU, but then also using nutrition interventions after the patient leaves ICU and following them through to hospital discharge. Um, so that study, I think, will give us really useful information about not just whether we can deliver more nutrition, which is the primary outcome, but some of the barriers that we encounter, which clinicians often know um, day to day when they're working, um, but trying to quantify some of those barriers and figuring out what we can do to improve nutrition over that long, long period. Um, so it's a very new area um, and a lot to be done. Yeah, so we really await Emma's research results there. That's right. And if people are interested, they can look up. It's called the Intent Trial. Great. Thanks, Leanne. We asked a lot of ICU dietitians what they might want to know from you. And so we've got some rapid fire questions for you. Um, the first one is international guidelines seem to have conflicting messages about managing ICU patients with different body compositions. What do you think we should consider here? Yeah, I think um, one of the difficult things with ICU is that we have so many different types of patients, different ages, different health conditions, um, and we treat them kind of all the same. Um, and with body composition, um, you know, that might be fat mass, it might be muscle mass. 
um, I think it's important to, to look at the patient and think about the metabolic consequences of what we're feeding. So a patient that has really high fat mass might not need the same level of nutrition as someone that's a high muscle mass or at different BMI levels. Um, I know that, that there's some research groups that are starting to think more about um, patients that you know, sit in that over um, over the healthy weight range in terms of BMI as a, a, a basic classification and and some of the guidelines like Aspen have started to recommend or Aspen, sorry, um, that we feed these patients that, that have an overweight or an obese um, BMI lower amounts of calories but higher protein. Um, one of the difficulties is actually meeting those in practice and, and having formulas that can deliver that high protein dose without, you know, exceeding calorie requirements. Um, I think we, we do need to consider body composition but also be aware that, that there is limited evidence around this space at the moment. So um, really waiting to see um, what, what other research groups can develop in, in guiding us how to feed those patients. Mm. The second question is, what does the evidence tell us about how we should provide nutrition support to ICU patients with pancreatitis? Sure. So pancreatitis is probably something that, um, aside from my clinical work, I haven't had much exposure to from a research perspective. Um, But it is something that universally I hear people saying that what's recommended in guidelines or what the evidence suggests isn't what they find in clinical practice. So the anecdotal evidence seems to be different from um, the the guideline recommendations, particularly around um, the position of feeding, so whether you use gastric feeding or post-pyloric and and the benefit of using Creon in those situations. Um, I think it, it can be hard when what what a guideline's telling you to do seems to be different to practice. And I do think you have to look at the clinical symptoms that you're experiencing and, and trying to find objective measures. So if you're getting sciatoria, then maybe what you're doing isn't working. And so really trying to, to talk to the team and look at the, the medical outcomes, I guess, and, and try and match your feeding regime to that. And sometimes you do have to stray from the evidence. The, the evidence is, um, you know, not perfect and things do change. Um, and they're evidence-based guidelines. They're not rules. And so I think we have to use clinical interpretation and focus on the patient in front of us using the evidence to support what we do, mm-hmm. but not following blindly. Yeah, good point. Um there's also a fear of overfeeding the ICU patient. Is that really something we should be concerned about or are we compromising our patient's nutrition for no good reason? Sure. So I guess, yeah, overfeeding is something that um, often clinicians and I should, can probably say often the doctors are often really concerned about and um there are effects of, of overfeeding, particularly in parenteral nutrition studies, some older evidence around the effect of giving too much calories, particularly glucose and um, the ability to wean patients, so having an impact on their respiratory function. Um, so I think it is a concern. Um, however, I don't think we have really strong evidence for the effect of it on when patients are enterally fed. Um, with some of the gastric emptying work we do, I've um, done in the past and that um, my team have done, we know that the stomach controls how much nutrients release and it, it actually empties on a kilocal basis rather than a volume basis. And so if you feed more, the stomach does tend to, you know, maintain the, how much of that actually gets into the bowel and into the blood where it has its negative effects. Um, so I think when we're enterally feeding patients, there is a the potential that it can be controlled. Um, Emma Ridley, Marianne um, Chapman and a few others um, 
with myself have published a review just recently looking at studies that have overfed patients using a predefined de definition for overfeeding. Um, I think that's one of the hard things to start with is what is overfeeding. Um, and we, we couldn't find very strong evidence to suggest that in enterally fed patients the overfeeding was harmful. Um, and we looked at things like blood glucose levels, um, gastrointestinal intolerance. Um, so I think we should be concerned, but I don't think we have to be so fearful um, that it compromises nutrition care. Mm. So finally then, um, Leanne, do you think nutrition care in the ICU is a matter of life or death? Can you help us answer that question or do you think it's more than that? Yeah. I mean, we don't want to do things that are going to kill people, I think, to start. So it is a matter of life or death, but it's definitely more than that. And I think survival in ICU is much higher than it has been in the past. Our patients are sicker, so we're obviously treating them much better than we have previously. Um, but we also need to think about how our patients after ICU, what is the quality of their, their recovery? Um, and I think nutrition um, is something that can influence those other outcomes, you know, function and muscle mass um, and also the, the psychological well-being of these patients. I think nutrition is something that's core. Um, you know, going back to why I got into it, it was the science and then the social, that combination of the two. Um, so I think it's really important that we think about how our patients are. We need to engage with them more across the whole journey um, and really try and use nutrition to improve recovery um, in the long term for these patients. Mm. Thank you so much, Leanne, for sharing with us today and helping us navigate interpreting and translating the evidence um, around ICU nutrition in uh, best practice for our critical care patients. And thank you to you and all the other dietitians who are working in this ICU nutrition space. I think it's fantastic that you know, dietitians are actually leading the way in this space. Definitely. So, yeah. And I think um, a lot of Australians and New Zealanders as well. So I think the, the number of dietitians with PhDs in ICU is um, very high in Australia compared mm. to other countries. So yeah. I think we can be proud of that. Definitely. So kudos to all of you and we look forward to seeing the results of the research that you'll all bring out over the next few years. So thank you again for joining us today. It's been a pleasure chatting with you. Thank you so much, Marie. Thanks for listening, wherever in the world you're tuning in from. If you did enjoy this podcast episode, we would really appreciate if you could leave a review for us. Leaving a review actually means the podcast gets to more dietitians and it can only elevate our profession if we work together. So please hit that review button. Tell us and other people what you thought about this episode. Another way to share your learnings from this episode and keep the conversation going is to take a screenshot of your phone screen, add your message and share it on social media. Don't forget to tag us at Dietitian Connection so we can share it with our following of over 30,000. Tell us what you learned and what future topics you'd like us to cover. If you'd like to access the show notes, they are available at dietitianconnection.com forward slash podcasts. Dietitian Connection is a global community of over 13,000 dietitians and we offer free professional development, job opportunities, resources and connections. We're committed to bringing dietitians together so we can create more impact and elevate our profession. And you can easily become a Dietitian Connection member for free by signing up at dietitianconnection.com.